0: Section 34 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 17, Part 2. Section 10 the sum is that the flesh and blood of christ feed our souls just as bread and wine maintain and support our corporeal life for there would be no aptitude in the sign did not our souls find their nourishment in christ this could not be did not christ truly form one with us and refresh us by the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood but though it seems an incredible thing that the flesh of christ while at such a distance from us in respect of place, should be food to us, let us remember how far the secret virtue of the Holy Spirit surpasses all our conceptions, and how foolish it is to wish to measure its immensity by our feeble capacity. Therefore, what our mind does not comprehend, let faith conceive, that is, that the Spirit truly unites things separated by space that sacred communion of flesh and blood by which christ transfuses his life into us just as if it penetrated our bones and marrow he testifies and seals in the supper and that not by presenting a vain or empty sign but by there exerting an efficacy of the spirit by which he fulfils what he promises and truly the thing there signified he exhibits and offers to all who sit down at that spiritual feast although it is beneficially received by believers only who receive this great benefit with true faith and heartfelt gratitude for this reason the apostles said the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of christ the bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of christ 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. There is no ground to object that the expression is figurative, and gives the sign the name of the thing signified. I admit, indeed, that the breaking of bread is a symbol, not the reality. But this being admitted, we duly infer from the exhibition of the symbol that the thing itself is exhibited. For unless we would charge God with deceit, we will never presume to say that he holds forth an empty symbol therefore if by the breaking of bread the lord truly represents the partaking of his body there ought to be no doubt whatever that he truly exhibits and performs it the rule which the pious ought always to observe is, whenever they see the symbols instituted by the Lord, to think and feel surely persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is also present. For why does the Lord put the symbol of his body into your hands, but just to assure you that you truly partake of him? If this is true, let us feel as much assured that the visible sign is given us in seal of an invisible gift as that his body itself is given to us section eleven i hold then as has always been received in the church and is still taught by those who feel aright that the sacred mystery of the supper consists of two things the corporeal signs which, presented to the eye, represent invisible things in a manner adapted to our weak capacity, and the spiritual truth, which is at once figured and exhibited by the signs. When attempting familiarly to explain its nature, I am accustomed to set down three things, the thing meant, the matter which depends on it, and the virtue or efficacy consequent upon both. The thing meant consists in the promises which are in a manner included in the sign. By the matter or substance, I mean Christ, with his death and resurrection. By the effect, I understand redemption, justification, sanctification, eternal life, and all other benefits which Christ bestows upon us. Moreover, though all these things have respect to faith, I leave no room for the cavil that when I say, Christ is conceived by faith, I mean that he is only conceived by the intellect and imagination. He is offered by the promises, not that we may stop short at the sight or mere knowledge of him, but that we may enjoy true communion with him. And, indeed, I see not how any one can expect to have redemption and righteousness in the cross of Christ, and life in his death, without trusting first of all to true communion with Christ himself. Those blessings could not reach us, did not Christ previously make himself ours. I say, then, that in the mystery of the supper, by the symbols of bread and wine, Christ, his body and his blood, are truly exhibited to us, that in them he fulfilled all obedience, in order to procure righteousness for us, first that we might become one body with him, and, secondly, that being made partakers of his substance, we might feel the result of this fact in the participation of all his blessings. Section 12 I now come to the hyperbolical mixtures which superstition has introduced. Here Satan has employed all his wiles, withdrawing the minds of men from heaven, and imbuing them with a perverse error that Christ is annexed to the element of bread. And, first, we are not to dream of such a presence of christ in the sacrament as the artificers of the romish court have imagined as if the body of christ locally present were to be taken into the hand and chewed by the teeth and swallowed by the throat this was the form of palinode which pope nicholas dictated to berengarius in token of his repentance a form expressed in terms so monstrous that the author of the gloss exclaims that there is danger if the reader is not particularly cautious that he will be led by it into a worse heresy than was that of berengarius peter lombard though he labours much to excuse the absurdity rather inclines to a different opinion as we cannot at all doubt that it is bounded according to the invariable rule in the human body and is contained in heaven where it was once received and will remain till it return to judgment So we deem it altogether unlawful to bring it back under these corruptible elements, or to imagine it everywhere present. And, indeed, there is no need of this in order to our partaking of it, since the Lord, by his Spirit, bestows upon us the blessing of being one with him in soul, body, and spirit. The bond of that connection, therefore, is the Spirit of Christ, who unites us to him, and is a kind of channel by which everything that Christ has and is, is derived to us. For if we see that the sun, in sending forth its rays upon the earth, to generate, cherish, and invigorate its offspring, in a manner transfuses its substance into it, why should the radiance of the Spirit be less in conveying to us the communion of his flesh and blood? Wherefore the scripture, when it speaks of our participation with Christ, refers its whole efficacy to the Spirit. Instead of many, one passage will suffice. Paul, in the epistle to the Romans, Romans 8, verses 9 to 11, shows that the only way in which Christ dwells in us is by his Spirit. By this, however, he does not take away that communion of flesh and blood, of which we now speak, but shows that it is owing to the Spirit alone that we possess Christ wholly, and have him abiding in us section thirteen the schoolmen horrified at this barbarous impiety speak more modestly though they do nothing more than amuse themselves with more subtle delusions they admit that christ is not contained in the sacraments circumscriptively or in a bodily manner but they afterwards devise a method which they themselves do not understand and cannot explain to others it however comes to this that christ may be sought in what they call the species of bread what when they say that the substance of bread is converted into christ do they not attach him to the white color which is all they leave of it but they say that though contained in the sacrament he still remains in heaven and has no other presence there than that of abode But, whatever be the terms in which they attempt to make a gloss, the sum of all is, that that which was formerly bread by consecration becomes Christ, so that Christ thereafter lies hid under the colour of bread. This they are not ashamed distinctly to express, for Lombard's words are, The body of Christ, which is visible in itself, lurks and lies covered after the act of consecration under the species of bread thus the figure of the bread is nothing but a mask which conceals the view of the flesh from our eye but there is no need of many conjectures to detect the snare which they intended to lay by these words since the thing itself speaks clearly it is easy to see how great is the superstition under which not only the vulgar but the leaders also have laboured for many ages and still labour in popish churches little solicitous as to true faith, by which alone we attain to the fellowship of Christ and become one with him, provided they have his carnal presence, which they have fabricated without authority from the word, they think he is sufficiently present. Hence we see that all which they have gained by their ingenious subtlety is to make bread to be regarded as God. Section 14. Hence proceeded that fictitious transubstantiation, for which they fight more fiercely in the present day, than for all the other articles of their faith. For the first architects of local presence could not explain how the body of Christ could be mixed with the substance of bread, without forthwith meeting with many absurdities. Hence it was necessary, to have recourse to the fiction, that there is a conversion of the bread into body, not that properly instead of bread it becomes body but that christ in order to conceal himself under the figure reduces the substance to nothing it is strange that they have fallen into such a degree of ignorance nay of stupor as to produce this monstrous fiction not only against scripture but also against the consent of the ancient church i admit indeed that some of the ancients occasionally used the term conversion Not that they meant to do away with the substance in the external signs, but to teach that the bread devoted to the sacrament was widely different from ordinary bread, and was now something else. All clearly and uniformly teach that the sacred supper consists of two parts, an earthly and a heavenly. The earthly, they without dispute, interpret to be bread and wine. Certainly, whatever they may pretend, it is plain that antiquity, which they often dare to oppose to the clear word of God, gives no countenance to that dogma. It is not so long since it was devised. Indeed, it was unknown not only to the better ages, in which a purer doctrine still flourished, but after that purity was considerably impaired. There is no early Christian writer who does not admit in distinct terms that the sacred symbols of the supper are bread and wine, although as has been said they sometimes distinguish them by various epithets in order to recommend the dignity of the mystery for when they say that a secret conversion takes place at consecration so that it is now something else than bread and wine their meaning as i already observed is not that these are annihilated but that they are to be considered in a different light from common food, which is only intended to feed the body, whereas in the former the spiritual food and drink of the mind are exhibited. This we deny not. But, say our opponents, if there is conversion, one thing must become another. If they mean that something becomes different from what it was before, I assent. If they will rest it in support of their fiction, let them tell me of what kind of change they are sensible in baptism. For here also the fathers make out a wonderful conversion, when they say that out of the corruptible element is made the spiritual laver of the soul, and yet no one denies that it still remains water. But, say they, there is no such expression in baptism as that in the supper. This is my body as if we were treating of these words which have a meaning sufficiently clear, and not rather of that term conversion, which ought not to mean more in the supper than in baptism. Have done, then, with those quibbles upon words, which betray nothing but their silliness. The meaning would have no congruity, unless the truth, which is there figured, had a living image in the external sign. Christ wished to testify by an external symbol that his flesh was food. If he exhibited merely an empty show of bread, and not true bread, where is the analogy or similitude to conduct us from the visible thing to the invisible? For in order to make all things consistent, the meaning cannot extend to more than this, that we are fed by the species of Christ's flesh. Just as, in the case of baptism, if the figure of water deceived the eye, it would not be to us a sure pledge of our ablution, nay, the fallacious spectacle would rather throw us into doubt. The nature of the sacrament is therefore overthrown, if, in the mode of signifying the earthly sign, corresponds not to the heavenly reality, and, accordingly, the truth of the mystery is lost if true bread does not represent the true body of Christ. I again repeat, since the supper is nothing but a conspicuous attestation to the promise which is contained in the sixth chapter of John, that is, that Christ is the bread of life, who came down from heaven, that visible bread must intervene in order that the spiritual bread may be figured, unless we would destroy all the benefits with which God here favours us, for the purpose of sustaining our infirmity. Then on what ground could Paul infer that we are all one bread, and one body in partaking together of that one bread, if only the semblance of bread, and not the natural reality, remained? Section 15. They could not have been so shamefully deluded by the impostures of Satan, had they not been fascinated by that erroneous idea that the body of christ included under the bread is transmitted by the bodily mouth into the belly the cause of this brutish imagination was that consecration had the same effect with them as magical incantation they overlooked the principle that bread is a sacrament to none but those to whom the word is addressed just as the water of baptism is not changed in itself but begins to be to us what it formerly was not as soon as the promise is annexed. This will better appear from the example of a similar sacrament. The water gushing from the rock in the desert was to the Israelites a badge and sign of the same thing that is figured to us in the supper by wine. For Paul declares that they drank the same spiritual drink, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. But the water was common to the herds and flocks of the people hence it is easy to infer that in the earthly elements when employed for a spiritual use no other conversion takes place than in respect of men inasmuch as they are to them seals of promises moreover since it is the purpose of god as i have repeatedly inculcated to raise us up to himself by fit vehicles those who indeed call us to christ but to Christ lurking invisibly under bread, impiously by their perverseness defeat this object. For it is impossible for the mind of man to disentangle itself from the immensity of space and ascend to Christ even above the heavens. What nature denied them, they attempted to gain by a noxious remedy. Remaining on the earth, they felt no need of a celestial proximity to Christ. Such was the necessity which impelled them to transfigure the body of Christ. In the age of Bernard, though a harsher mode of speech had prevailed, transubstantiation was not yet recognized. And in all previous ages, the similitude in the mouths of all was that a spiritual reality was conjoined with bread and wine in this sacrament. As to the terms, they think they answer acutely, though they adduce nothing relevant to the case in hand. The rod of Moses, they say, When turned into a serpent, though it acquires the name of a serpent, still retains its former name and is called a rod, and thus, according to them, it is equally probable that though the bread passes into a new substance, it is still called by catacrisis, and not ineptly, what it still appears to the eye to be. But what resemblance, real or apparent, do they find between an illustrious miracle and their fictitious illusion, of which no eye on the earth is witness? the magi by their impostures had persuaded the egyptians that they had a divine power above the ordinary course of nature to change created beings moses comes forth and after exposing their fallacies shows that the invincible power of god is on his side since his rod swallows up all the other rods but as that conversion was visible to the eye we have already observed that it has no reference to the case in hand Shortly after the rod visibly resumed its form, it may be added that we know not whether this was an extemporary conversion of substance, for we must attend to the allusion to the rods of the magicians, which the prophet did not choose to term serpents, lest he might seem to insinuate a conversion which had no existence, because those impostors had done nothing more than blind the eyes of the spectators. But what resemblance is there between that expression and the following, the bread which we break? As often as ye eat this bread? They communicated in the breaking of bread? And so forth. It is certain that the eye only was deceived by the incantation of the magicians. The matter is more doubtful with regard to Moses, by whose hand it was not more difficult for God to make a serpent out of a rod, and again to make a rod out of a serpent, than to clothe angels with corporeal bodies, and a little after unclothe them if the case of the sacrament were at all akin to this there might be some colour for their explanation let it therefore remain fixed that there is no true fit and promise in the supper that the flesh of christ is truly meat unless there is a correspondence in the true substance of the external symbol but as one error gives rise to another a passage in jeremiah has been so absurdly rested To prove transubstantiation, that it is painful to refer to it. The prophet complains that wood was placed in his bread, intimating that by the cruelty of his enemies his bread was infected with bitterness, as David by a similar figure complains. They also gave me gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 69, verse 21. These men would allegorize the expression to mean that the body of Christ was nailed to the wood of the cross. But some of the fathers thought so, as if we ought not rather to pardon their ignorance and bury the disgrace, than to add impudence and bringing them into hostile conflict with the genuine meaning of the prophet. Section sixteen: Some who see that the analogy between the sign and the thing signified cannot be destroyed without destroying the truth of the sacrament, admit that the bread of the supper is truly the substance of an earthly and corruptible element and cannot suffer any change in itself, but must have the body of Christ included under it. If they would explain this to mean, that when the bread is held forth in the sacrament, an exhibition of the body is annexed, because the truth is inseparable from its sign, I would not greatly object, but because fixing the body itself in the bread, they attach to it an ubiquity contrary to its nature, and by adding under the bread, will have it that it lies hid under it, I must employ a short time in exposing their craft, and dragging them forth from their concealments. Here, however, it is not my intention, professedly, to discuss the whole case. I mean only to lay the foundations of a discussion, which will afterwards follow in its own place. They insist, then, that the body of Christ is invisible and immense, so that it may be hid under bread, because they think that there is no other way by which they can communicate with Him than by his descending into the bread, though they do not comprehend the mode of descent by which he raises us up to himself. They employ all the colours they possibly can, but after they have said all, it is sufficiently apparent that they insist on the local presence of Christ. How so? Because they cannot conceive any other participation of flesh and blood than that which consists either in local conjunction and contact, or in some gross method of enclosing. Section 17. Some, in order obstinately to maintain the error which they have once rashly adopted, hesitate not to assert that the dimensions of Christ's flesh are not more circumscribed than those of heaven and earth. His birth as an infant, his growth, his extension on the cross, his confinement in the sepulchre, were effected, they say, by a kind of dispensation, that he might perform the offices of being born, of dying, and of other human acts his being seen with his wonted bodily appearance after the resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his appearance after his ascension to Stephen and Paul, were the effect of the same dispensation, that it might be made apparent to the eye of man that he was constituted king in heaven. What is this but to call forth Marcion from his grave? For there cannot be a doubt that the body of Christ, if so constituted, was a phantasm, or was fantastical, some employ a rather more subtle evasion, that the body which is given in the sacrament is glorious and immortal, and that, therefore, there is no absurdity in its being contained under the sacrament in various places, or in no place, and in no form. But, I ask, what did Christ give to his disciples the day before he suffered? Do not the words say that he gave the mortal body, which was to be delivered shortly after? But, they say, he had previously manifested his glory to the three disciples on the mount. Matthew seventeen verse two. This is true, but his purpose was to give them for the time a taste of immortality. Still they cannot find there a twofold body, but only the one which he assumed, arrayed in new glory. When he distributed his body in the first supper, the hour was at hand in which he was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah fifty three verse four. So far was he from intending at that time to exhibit the glory of his resurrection. And here what a door is open to Marcion if the body of Christ was seen humble and mortal in one place, glorious and immortal in another. And yet, if their opinion is well founded, the same thing happens every day, because they are forced to admit that the body of Christ, which is in itself visible, lurks invisibly under the symbol of bread and yet those who send forth such monstrous dogmas so far from being ashamed at the disgrace assail us with virulent invectives for not subscribing to them section eighteen but assuming that the body and blood of christ are attached to the bread and wine then the one must necessarily be dissevered from the other for as the bread is given separately from the cup so the body united to the bread must be separated from the blood included in the cup For since they affirm that the body is in the bread, and the blood is in the cup, while the bread and wine are, in regard to space, at some distance from each other, they cannot by any quibble evade the conclusion that the body must be separated from the blood. Their usual pretense, that is, that the blood is in the body, and the body again in the blood, by what they call concomitants, is more than frivolous, since the symbols in which they are included are thus distinguished but if we are carried to heaven with our eyes and minds that we may there behold christ in the glory of his kingdom as the symbols invite us to him in his integrity so under the symbol of bread we must feed on his body and under the symbol of wine drink separately of his blood and thereby have the full enjoyment of him for though he withdrew his flesh from us and with his body ascended to heaven he however sits at the right hand of the father that is He reigns in power and majesty, and the glory of the Father. This kingdom is not limited by any intervals of space, nor circumscribed by any dimensions. Christ can exert his energy wherever he pleases, in earth and heaven, can manifest his presence by the exercise of his power, can always be present with his people, breathing into them his own life, can live in them, sustain, confirm and invigorate them, and preserve them safe, just as if he were with them in the body in fine can feed them with his own body communion with which he transfuses into them after this manner the body and blood of christ are exhibited to us in the sacrament section nineteen the presence of christ in the supper we must hold to be such as neither affixes him to the element of bread nor encloses him in bread nor circumscribes him in any way this would obviously detract from his celestial glory and it must moreover Be such as neither divests him of his just dimensions, nor dissevers him by differences of place, nor assigns to him a body of boundless dimensions diffused through heaven and earth. All these things are clearly repugnant to his true human nature. Let us never allow ourselves to lose sight of the two restrictions. First, let there be nothing derogatory to the heavenly glory of Christ. This happens whenever he is brought under the corruptible elements of this world, or is affixed to any earthly creatures secondly let no property be assigned to his body inconsistent with his human nature this is done when it is either said to be infinite or made to occupy a variety of places at the same time but when these absurdities are discarded i willingly admit anything which helps to express the true and substantial communication of the body and blood of the lord as exhibited to believers under the sacred symbols of the supper understanding that they are received not by the imagination or intellect merely, but are enjoyed in reality as the food of eternal life. For the odium with which this view is regarded by the world, and the unjust prejudice incurred by its defence, there is no cause, unless it be in the fearful fascinations of Satan. What we teach on the subject is in perfect accordance with the Scripture, contains nothing absurd, obscure, or ambiguous, is not unfavourable to true piety and solid edification in short has nothing in it to offend save that for some ages while the ignorance and barbarism of sophists reigned in the church the clear light and open truth were unbecomingly suppressed and yet as satan by means of turbulent spirits is still in the present day exerting himself to the utmost to bring dishonour on this doctrine by all kinds of calumny and reproach It is right to assert and defend it with the greatest care. End of section thirty four.